everyone, I'm Troy Dodds and welcome to the On The Record podcast presented by The Western Weekender. On this podcast, I'm joined by special guests who all have such great stories to tell about Penrith and the role they've played in our city. They are Penrith stories told by Penrith people. Today, my special guest is Peter Collins. Peter is currently the chairman of Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District, which oversees Nepean Hospital. But prior to that, he had a long career in politics, including as opposition leader in New South Wales. He has also restored the historic Warrington House. I really hope you enjoy our chat. Peter, thanks for joining us. Troy, great to be here and great to talk to you. Question we always ask to kick things off. Uh, Where were you born? Where did you grow up? Lismore, New South Wales, so the area that uh, copped the floods uh, earlier this year, again, um, and um, and my 91-year-old aunt was the, um, the last immediate member of my father's family to leave Lismore when her house was flooded two days short of her 91st birthday. Wow, okay. So, um, yeah, Lismore, New South Wales. Um, uh Spent a couple of years there, uh, mostly with my grandparents, um, and actually remember floods even back in you know as a as a, a as an infant. Yeah. Um, but uh, grew up first ten years in Queensland. Basically, my father worked for CSR, so we lived in Brisbane, t- uh, South Townsville at one stage, and then back to Brisbane, and then um, and then you know much to my regret at the time, moved to Sydney and have <laughs> been here ever since. And what was what were your parents like? What was um, what, what were your parents like, and what was growing up like? Doing a bit of moving around, by the sounds of it, uh, moved moved a fair bit with uh, with the company. So you know, company housing, and um, but but look, we were lucky. My father was one of those uh, demobilised Air Force officers after World War Two, and um, he went into the management course in CSR. So he was sort of middle or was headed towards middle ranking management um, which meant you know the houses were pretty good and the suburbs were pretty good so uh, we lived around the corner from Queensland University where I thought I would go to university um, and that that didn't happen but um, uh, my father was a big influence on me until my parents separated and um, he basically stayed in Queensland we we stayed in New South Wales where he'd been posted but he was a big influence in terms of my military interest he had served in the Air Force he was quite a hero to me I mean you know pretty typical mm. story there I guess absolutely yeah. and um, and his father had served in the Royal Navy and so on so I was you know, instilled in me was I was going to do something uh, military, naval, air force, something in, in that in that field, and it's been a, been a passionate interest of mine all my life. And of course, you do end up doing that. But first, uh, you are a, a man of many careers, almost. I, I believe journalism is that correct journalism. to say that was your first kind Absolutely. of tranche and, of career. And uh, and what what a thrill that was. I mean, for me, that was winning the lottery. So when um, I left law school. I did something very atypical. I mean, uh, I was the only one who went into journalism out of um, my year at Sydney Law School, which, which when I started, was the only law school in the state. Yeah. And, um, and so I won the lottery. I became a specialist trainee at ABC Television with my two degrees and was sort of looked upon, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. you're meant to be a lawyer. Um, and I worked as a researcher initially for, I guess, a precursor of what is now... Uh, the Q&A format, um, research for Four Corners, research for what is now the 7.30 report in, you know, gr- groundbreaking programs um, this day tonight. So I was a reporter on this day tonight, loved it, did a lot of defence work and did a lot of arts work, which kind of led me into what I did in politics. Was journalism something that you, you thought, hey, this is it for me? Or were you always thinking, hey, the, the Defence Force is calling? Because I know that in, in 1964, that really begins for you. It, it, well, in 60, 64 was a big uh, turning point. I mean, I thought I was going to be a regular army officer and I was going to the Royal Military College. And just to, just to map that out a bit for you, I had been very active in school cadets at yep. Waverley College. We had a massive cadet unit. Uh, and I, um, so I took it very seriously. I went to Duntroon. They have a, a cadet, school cadet visit to Duntroon, or had in those days, where it was a kind of a preview of this is, this is what you could do as, as an army officer, have a sure. look at it. Spent four days at the Royal Military College, loved it, so applied. 
Um, and they said the first year I applied, they had a scholarship scheme. They said, you've got another scholarship, so we won't give you this one, but come back next year. It's looking good. Came back next year. I had a skin rash. It was, it was the worst skin rash on my arms I've ever had in my life. I had it for a total of three weeks, the Duntroon Medical. I was medically unfit to join the regular army right. for three weeks in my entire life. Oh, yeah. So I had... Um, uh, so there, there went that idea of um, going, going to Duntroon, and becoming an army officer, and being an SAS officer, which is what I wanted to do. Mm. You were there for something like forty years um, in, in the defence force, on and off, and through through different yep. roles. W- what was the period during that time where you, I guess was the most challenging or the most the most difficult? Because I presume that there was there was good times, bad yeah. times. The single uh, the single most challenging thing I did. Um, was doing my military parachutist course at RAAF Williamtown in 1969. So I was a, a new commando officer. I'd, I'd sort of got my commission in Sydney University Regiment. Uh, I had transferred to commandos. I was the uh, youngest officer in commandos, and they said, right, you know, sir, you are off to do a parachute course. Now, there's just a bit of a problem about that, Troy, and that is that I'm actually afraid of heights, but, you know, <laughs> I had to take that into account. Every time I jumped, I was convinced I would be the first um, military fatality in uh, uh, in a fatality in military parachute yeah. in Australia. So it was um, every time uh, the parachute opened, it was a great relief. And <laughs> as it is, and, yes, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that um, that was uh, that was a, an amazing time because. You've got to remember. Remember, the Vietnam War was on. My CO at that time, when I was in, uh, when I was a commando officer, was Harry Smith, as in the leader of uh, the Battle of Long Tan. Sure. And um, and so he was an awesome and iconic Australian leader. I mean, you've got the the movie Danger Close that was made about him. Mm-hmm. And um, so I was there with some uh, pretty heavy hitters and incredibly professional soldiers, and they were awe inspiring. You must have seen pretty dramatic change in the Defence Force over those those 40 years as well. Very much so. So, I mean, I belonged to the 1st um, Special Forces Unit, and I think correctly I had foreseen the rise of Special Forces. So, basically, since that time, Special Forces seem to have become the answer for everything. And I've got to say, um, that's that's created its own set of problems because I think that in a way they've been taken away from some of their original tasks and they've been overworked, too many sure. deployments and too many uh, lost opportunities, I guess, for other parts of the army in particular infantry, which would, would have done this work before um, before the rise of special forces. So I witnessed that and look, in a way, I well, I saw that special forces would come into their own, but I didn't see that they would be given um, such uh, multitasking. How is this all affecting your your personal life and things like that at the time? Because it's it's not a nine to five gig, um, particularly through that early period where you're doing a lot of training in the sixties and seventies, as, as you mentioned. So, is it something that engulfs your life? Um, do you have time for a personal life? Well, how do, how does it all work? Uh, well, you um, I think you hit the nail on the head in your introduction. I mean, I've had um, I've had serial careers. I've had yeah. a number of careers in in different spaces. And look, some of some of these have been simultaneous. So the entire time I spent in politics, twenty two years, I was also um, a reservist as active as I possibly could yep. be. Ended up doing thirty seven years as a naval reserve officer. So um, uh, I have um, tried my hand at, at different things, and um, I've basically ticked all of those boxes that I hope to tick although I didn't get to Canberra so I didn't I didn't transition to federal politics well, let's talk about politics it officially entered your life in the 1980s but was it a political where, where did that come from a political family um, you know and you know where, where was that background for not you? A, not a political family but it's an interesting question because um, as a child, I um, met the leader of the Liberal Party, the leader of the opposition, because my grandfather managed his property. Okay. Uh, Sir Vernon Triot owned a property uh, just east of uh, of Bathurst and uh, at O'Connell. And uh, we used to go there for all of our Christmas holidays. And actually, for a while, I even went to school at O'Connell, a bush school, uh, when uh, my my mother contracted an illness and we had to stay there for a while. Um, so I met the leader of the opposition and ironically, 
decades later, I would fill exactly the position yes, he'd filled, and and um, and uh, you know, in a kind of a, a beautiful um, circle, he he was a king's counsel. He was a distinguished lawyer, lectured at Sydney Law School, military medal winner in the First World War. And he gave me his King's Council robes, which I wore as Attorney General. He'd been Justice Minister. I became Attorney General. And um, I've still got those robes, and they're very precious to me. Was it that meeting that, that sort of turned you to more towards the Liberal Party, or did, was it something that you, you kind of followed those values anyway? Um, it in, was in interesting. General? I was at university in the Vietnam era, so politics um, yeah. was engulfing everyone. Yeah. And uh, I... I, I was very active in student politics and um, and uh, and in my first week at university, one of the, the fellow students I met was one Nick Greiner yep. uh, on the steps of um, Sydney University Library, Fisher Library. And uh, six months later, he was president of the Economics Society and I was president of the Arts Society. And, you know, guess who ended up treasurer and guess who ended up arts minister? Uh, so I started to get um, – I was interested and there was a lot happening. I got into the process of arranging speakers on campus and inviting people to speak on campus. Out of that, I got to meet um, a number of um, liberal ministers. Um, I also um, um, became uh, – uh, involved in the Student Representative Council and Uni University Union and so on. I actually decided I'd go into politics in 1968. I, I remember precisely when, and that was the death of Robert Kennedy. I was a Kennedy fan. I went mm -hmm. to school in the Kennedy era. Um, and, you know, we had um, uh, a, a deeply respected but elderly and past-generation leader in Sir Robert Menzies leading the Liberal Party uh, at the same time, the United States had its youngest ever president, John F. Kennedy, who really brought politics into the modern age and used sure. television for the first the first time as a president. And um, and so I um, when when Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in uh, in June 1968, I decided right, this is it. I'm going to go into politics. And that 1981 election, which is when you were elected as the the member for Willoughby, how, how did how did that election feel for you? And also, how, how did you become a candidate? Was it a, a long process? Uh, we, we've had guests on here before who've tried to, to be, um, you know, aim for pre-selection and things like that. Was it an easy process for you or, or a difficult one to get to representing the Liberals in 1981? Well, it's interesting how it worked out. So I was living in, um, uh, after a, uh, my time at the ABC, I was living in Wallara. I'd bought an old house to restore in, in Ocean Street, Wallara. And I thought I would um, hang around for the uh, the federal seat of Wentworth. Yep. But then North Sydney came up and I ran for North Sydney. North Sydney was run twice. I kind of didn't make the final cut in the first round, but I made the final cut in the second round against people like Alan Jones sure. uh, and uh, John, John Spender, who won the seat. Um, and a, a byproduct of that, uh, was uh, Willoughby was half of the North, North Sydney electorate. And so Willoughby came up and uh, I ran for that and beat the Lord Mayor of Sydney, Nelson Mears, who was pre predicted to be the next uh, Liberal leader, and also beat the local mayor, uh, Noel Reedy, a, a lovely man. Um, and so came through the middle, won won the Willoughby pre-selection. The irony was that Wentworth came up even before the state election. Yeah. Had I hung around, I could have contested <laughs> Wentworth. But anyway, um, I won in 1981, and I was the only the only Liberal to win back a seat from the Labor Party in that election. It was the, ra the, the second Rand slide. And Neville Rand was a formidable opponent. I mean, he absolutely dominated New South Wales politics. Mm. And I'd interviewed him when I worked for the ABC and, you know, kind of saw his rise. And he was, I, I had huge respect for him as a politician. And he's, um, I've got to say, the best political act I've seen live. And of course, you stay in that seat for the next 22 years. Uh, you, you have a, a strong political career, both in opposition and in government. Uh, tell us about finally forming government. We, um, by that time, I was deputy, so I became deputy leader of the Liberal Party in '86. And Nick Griner and I worked closely together then. And uh, and when we worked closely, we were extremely effective. When we didn't work closely, we were less effective. Um, but um, we uh, 
we were a real team and we got up in 88. Uh, we could see government coming, but, you know, it's never there till you've, you've won. Often very much in state politics, uh, you can feel the end of a, of a government you coming. Can. Because I think I was looking the other day, 1930 was the last time a party had a, had a single term in government. So, the, you know, the public generally gives them that, that two or three term reign yes. and then it's, hey, time for a change here. There's a cycle. Mm. There's a cycle, and you could see that um, Labor's Labor's cycle was coming to an end. So Rand had gone in '86, and um, uh, Barry Unsworth took over. And you know, Barry, while he was uh, um, a, a good man, um, wasn't uh, wasn't the formidable player that Rand had been. And you could see the cycle come to an end. So we prepared for it. Um, when I became deputy leader, I also um, became uh, became shadow health minister. And yep. it was interesting, that happened more or less by accident. A friend of mine had been critically injured in a helicopter accident in North Queensland and was in the spinal unit at Royal North Shore Hospital. I went to visit him as, and um, uh, he said, look, you know, just as I was about to leave, he said, can you see that piece of paper over there? And because he, co- he, he couldn't move, he, yep. um, he was paralyzed. And so indicating with his eyes, he said, see that piece of paper, take a look at it. And the piece of paper was basically to the families of patients saying, if you can come in and feed your family member, uh, we're short staffed. And, you know, that would that would really help. Wow. And uh, and I said, are you kidding? They're that short staffed. And I said, what do you want me to do about it? He said, you can do what you like with it. I, 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 and I said, look, I don't want any reprisals against you. Um, you've shown me this. I mean, I don't want to yeah. get, get you in trouble. Yeah. Did no, no, use it anyway. That was a um, that was a lead story television news that ran for two or three days, and at about the time that um, the deputy leadership came up, and um, so with the deputy leadership came came health. It's like, well, you've done that story really well. You, yeah. You're on top of that. So I was I, shadow health minister, and when we won office in '88, I went in as health minister. And it's during that time as health minister that you could say your first. Uh uh, relationship with Penrith is formed, um, a pretty important initiative at Nepean Hospital that remains well in place today. Tell us about that. I, uh, when I came to Nepean for the first time, and look, you know, I'd been out here, I'd actually, one of my, uh, my dearest uncles uh, ran Penrith Steering Service uh, right yeah, where okay. we're, near where we're doing this interview. Yeah. And, um, and uh, he, uh, so I, Penrith was not strange to me. I mean, I stayed with them in Christmas holidays and things like that. I had done some of my army training at Walgrove and Penrith was, you know, the big town. If you, if you could ever possibly get away for the weekend, yeah. you'd go and have a milkshake in Penrith or something yep. really, really exciting. Um, so when I became health minister and came to Nepean, um, Nepean Hospital, we had a, a birth rate here of something like three and a half thousand and no neonatal intensive care. This was at a time when babies were being flown interstate. Newborns and mothers were being flown interstate because we didn't have the beds for yeah. them. And I, this, this, this was front page stuff in the evening newspapers back when there were evening yep, newspapers. Yep. And uh, this really had to be sorted. This was a major problem, which, which had been part of the undoing of the previous government. So I said... I set out to fix this problem, um, and so two things I did with Nepean. One, I made Nepean, Liverpool, and St George teaching hospitals um, because I could see that you know Penrith was the logical place to have a teaching hospital, as was Liverpool, uh, on on the uh, outer fringe of Sydney at that stage. Secondly, I put neonatal intensive care in in Nepean Hospital, um, and uh, I. Um, I was pleased to see that happen reasonably quickly, given the birth rate that we had here. And it remains a major part of Nepean Hospital today and and something that's been used probably by tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people since since it was implemented. Correct. And it gave me intense satisfaction. Well, I mean, therefore, becoming chair of Nepean was a kind of a a bookend to what I started 30 years ago. But, But... to go back to see the birthing unit in the new Nepean Hospital just gave me intense satisfaction given how far we'd come, given we had no, not a single neonatal intensive care cot here back in um, um, 88, uh, 91 when I was the health minister. It's interesting because we often look at politicians and we, we probably 
I guess, dehumanise them in, in some ways. But it's interesting, your your rise to health minister comes as a result of your friend in a hospital bed. You see something that you don't like. You know, there is personal attachment to it and you must feel, I guess, a sense of pride when you do see a result like that come to fruition. Well, very much so. And I think, um, uh, I think that... Uh, environmental factors, uh, friendships and what hap- you know, what happens to your friends and your acquaintances yeah. and what you see uh, has to shape who you become. And, uh, and, and you know, I've, I feel, okay, coming out of the, the Kennedy era, I mean, and coming out of the school I'd gone to, Waverley College, Christian Brothers, all of that, one thing they instilled in me was a sense of social justice. And uh, I just don't like unfairness in the world. I, you know, I, um, and if I see, um, I see um, a cause that needs backing, then I'm, I'm often attracted to it. You're also the Arts Minister during this time as well, sometimes a forgotten portfolio, a forgotten industry. How important was that one to you? It was incredibly important to me because um, by... I mean, I had no, no arts background, so I went to a school where, you know, you did... You did uh, you did maths, you did science, and uh, if you wanted to be in the top class and you wanted to get some kind of scholarship to get somewhere, you didn't, you didn't do stuff like arts. Sure. So I didn't even get a chance to do history, so I wanted to make up for that. So when I got to university, I became very interested in and involved in it. It was making up for lost time. I really got into the arts. I mean, I had a subscription to the Australian Ballet, yeah. Sydney Symphony Orchestra as a 17, 18-year-old student, not because I knew anything about music, but I wanted to. And so that became part of my life. And when I was a student editor at university, um, much of what I covered was art. So I did theatre reviews and things like that. I took that into the ABC. About a third of what I did at the ABC, and this was self-choice, was um, um, uh, arts-related. So uh, I developed an extensive knowledge of and, you know, amazing contact book uh, within the arts, and I wanted to carry that into politics. People look at the arts now and think, oh, well, it's pretty well entrenched now. It wasn't in my, my day. I was actually, I made myself the shadow minister for the arts. Yep. Um, when, when we won office in 88, it was a case of every player gets a prize. The Liberal Party had been basically shredded by Neville Rand. Yep. So we, we had 14 members. The National Party had 14 members. Everyone was a shadow minister, yeah. you know, <laughs> so, so including me. And... Um, I remember John Dowd, the opposition leader, saying, so, you know, look, what, what would you like? And I said, oh, attorney general, you know, I'm a lawyer. <laughs> well, sure, sure, you're not having that. You know, we've got other lawyers. So what else would you like? And I said, whatever, whatever you want to give me plus the arts. And he said, but there's no portfolio. There will be, I said. Yeah. There will be an arts portfolio. So I, I became the shadow minister for the arts before Neville Rand made himself the minister for wow, the arts okay. and state there premier. Now, 1995, uh, we talk about cycles. Uh, Bob Carr wins uh, back government for Labor. Yeah. Uh, you become, though, um, as much as the Liberals lose the, the election, there's a, there's a silver lining for you. You become opposition leader. Um, is it a poison chalice to, to pick that up after a losing election? How, how did it feel? It was a poison chalice, and I mean, I knew it at the time, um, because uh, politics does work in cycles. And to your point, the last there'd been only, I think, in the last century, um, one one-term government. So, um, being the first opposition leader after an election, I mean, okay, it's an honour to be the leader, and I was elected unopposed. But um, but it's a tough fight, and you're going right against the odds. And um, so I did that entire first term. Um, I did basically four years, although it reads as 95 to 98. It was really the full four-year term. And I was deposed as leader. Yes, Kerry Chikorovsky. On on the last bell of the last day of that parliament. Did you feel you would fight the election or did you feel you were... You were really biding time for something like that to happen. Was that always in the shadows? That I thought I'd fight the election. I mean, I thought... I, I figured it out. I mean, um, um, Kerry, uh, Kerry had uh, some supporters, you know, there were – it was a fight. It was actually a close fight. Um, poll-wise, we were pretty close to the Labor Party. It was winnable. Yeah. Um, the, the gap fluctuated, but it was within reach. People forget that we were only down initially one seat. There was a one-seat difference after the 95 election. Yeah. And that seat uh, – well, what decided the election, of course, was Badgeries Creek, yep. which is, you know, again, so in, you know, intensely uh, local – 
for where I am now. Um, and then it became a, a two-seat uh, uh, two gap. It was still a winnable election. Uh, it was still, of course, a losable election, and I was yeah. trying to fight the cycle. I thought that um, it was possible that my last – I thought my last – the last real challenge to me was potentially six months out from um, what was the 99 election. And when that came and went, I thought, okay, well, that's it. You know, you, yeah. can't, you can't really challenge after this because no one who takes over is going to have any chance to really make themselves known to the public and it won't work. Well, my, my party decided 112 days short of the 99 elections that they would try a new leader. And there's a whole set of circumstances behind that. I'll burden you with another time. But um, they did that. And I said on the day that I was replaced when I was headed for a meeting of Western Sydney councils yep. and I got a call saying, you need to come back to Parliament House. And that was the last day of Parliament. Uh, I got the call, come back. We have, we need, you know, we need you urgently. And I'm, I'm thinking, this is really weird. What's this? I get back and basically um, my uh, deputy leader, who I had uh, um, fought for rigorously um, and defended um, with other party members saying maybe he should, he should go. And the leader in the upper house said, look, time's up. Um, um, you don't have the numbers in the party room anymore. And that was it. And I said, this is going to, you're going to spend a, a decade in the wilderness. This cannot work. And they said, oh, but it can work. What do you mean it can work? You know, he said, there's a precedent. What's the precedent? Bob Hawke was the precedent. Well, hang on. I mean, Bob Hawke was a household name right across Australia yeah. for 10 years before he took the, the prime ministership from Bill Hayden. Um, so, look, it was a disaster for the Liberal Party. Uh, um, it was the lost decade for the Liberal Party. Bob Carr, who I get on very well with and had known since we were about 18, um, Bob Carr had, um, had a dream run. Uh, courtesy of the Liberal Party. I guess you'll never know, but yeah, do you look at that time and go, well, it would have turned out differently, even if you'd lost the election. Yeah. Um, certainly the, you know, there would have been a different feel about what then happened over the next few few terms. Yeah, I do. And um, I think that it it, uh, it could have been very different. And actually for the, for the state, I mean, look, Bob had, um, Bob, we went from a, a two-seat deficit to a 17-seat deficit. And that gap remained intact for the decade I predicted. And the first person to turn that around was Stuart Ayres in Penrith in 2010 in that by-election. Uh, but it took all that time for it to turn around. And uh, that meant that, uh, that Bob had an easy run. I mean, there wasn't yeah. a real challenge there. He had a massive buffer. Yeah, we often talk about changes and landslides and whatnot, but change often takes a, a long time to occur. If you get something wrong... It's a long process before it gets fixed. It's a long process. And therefore, um, what keeps a government on its toes is a narrow majority. Uh, a tight, tight numbers mean uh, you get maximum performance out of politicians. If either side have, um, have a lot of fat, then that, uh, that, you know, I think that's bad for democracy. You, of course, still win the seat of Willoughby in, at that election. And then you decide to not contest the 2003 election. What was your thinking there? Um, we all know that Gladys Berejiklian ends up winning that seat, of course, uh, for the Liberals. But why did you decide not to contest? Why was it time? Well, um, I, I figured that, um, again, going back to political cycles, this cycle wasn't going to change any time soon. And my side weren't going to let me back near the leadership. I mean, I still had support there. I still had people who said... So you still had aspirations to, to lead at this point? Not, or? not at that stage. Yeah. No, no. I mean, I realised on um, uh, December the 4th, 1998, that my, my time was done. Um, why, why did I recontest Willoughby 112 days later? Well, because there wasn't a plan B. I was the leader. I was going to be the Premier. Yeah. Um, and I was locked into that. So there wasn't a, oh, look, I think I'll leave now. So I, I did that next term and I... Um, eventually came back after Chikorovsky was replaced by Brogdon. I was made a shadow minister again, so I ended yeah. my time as a shadow minister. But I realised it would be a long slog until uh, the Liberal Party was back in office. Um, what I did in the meantime, though, was I said to um, 
you know I gave Gladys Berejiklian in her first job in politics. Um, she walked in off the street as a student into my electorate office and yeah. started one day a week in my electorate office and in the end um, ended up my research director as leader of the opposition. I said to Gladys she should, um, she should prepare herself to run for pre-selection and uh, um, I remember an, an exact exchange, Troy, I said to her, look, you can stack as many branches as you like. You can put your people in as many branches as you like in my electorate. But the deal is, as long as I want to stay here, they vote for me. Yep. And she said, deal, you have my absolute support. And I, she would never have challenged me. Sure. And when I gave her the call one day uh, in, um, uh, in 2002 saying, I'm not going round again, and are you ready to run? She was... Um, She'd gone off. She was uh, working for the Commonwealth Bank at, the, at that time. Right. So she had her she, her career was making very very nice strides, and she said, "You sure you don't want to go around again? Why don't you stay another term? You know, PC. She always called me PC. Don't you know? Too, too early to leave." And I said, "No, no. Um, I'm I'm leaving. Are you ready to run?" And she won the pre-selection. And then she won the seat by just 144 votes, and was you know I mean that gave her gave her the shock of her life. Yeah. When you have a turnover like that, yeah. after particularly after there's been uh, an entrenched member, high profile member for 20 odd years, um, whoever comes in to replace them, the you know the the personal vote usually drops off, and um, and it, it takes uh, a, a term for the, the the replacement member to really pick that up again. And it's around the the end of your political career. I think you write a couple of books. Is, uh, yeah, is well, well, I wrote the Bear exactly. Pit. Was I, your, your I wrote first? the Bear Pit oh, yeah. in two thousand, which kind of got it off my chest. Yeah, uh, and um, I was going to give it a different title. I was going to call it Nothing Personal uh, <laughs> because um, when the Labor Party uh, uh, at one stage referred me to ICAC. Um, and outside the chamber, um, the leader of the House for the Labor Party, I said, you know, you know, this is complete rubbish. You know, you don't have a feather to fly with on this. And the reply was, Peter, nothing personal. And, <laughs> <laughs> but that took a year of my life. And, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a tough business. I mean, it is – you lose a lot of skin in politics. If, yeah. if, if you play in the front row – for a long time, and I had 12, 12 of my 22 years were in either leadership or ministerial roles, so you lose a lot of skin in that. If you if you don't get terribly active and you don't do much, well, I suppose you lose less. To, to that point, how difficult is it? We've just seen, obviously, the resignation of Stuart Ayres as a, as a minister over, uh, over uh, whether he got too involved in a process or not, but I'm guessing that as a minister, if, if you, as you say, if you are a very active minister... It's very hard sometimes to even know where that line is, um, you know, in terms of, well, the pub test, but the official rules, the where, where independence is blurred, particularly if you have over, overarching responsibility for it. Is that a, was that an ongoing challenge during your whole time in politics? It's, um, yes. Uh, look, as a, um, uh, if you're in, the, in the, the front row, if you're a senior politician, a senior minister or leader, um, then... You, you get to call the shots and you get to make the decisions and it's your judgment by which you win or lose and you get a daily report card in the newspapers and yeah. television news. And, um, and look, the simple fact is um, even, even the best people and smartest people get things, uh, get things wrong. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a couple of things that, uh, that uh, well, I'm no exception to that. No one's an exception to that. So... Um, you just don't want to get uh, get things wrong um, in in a way that really you know cost you your your position or disadvantage the government at a critical time. We'll fast forward a little bit, but over the next few years and, and decades, Western Sydney uh, becomes a big part of your life again. We'll talk about Nepean Hospital in a moment, but tell us firstly about what brought you back to Western Sydney because it's a, it's a pretty special project. I uh, yeah, I remarried um, in two thousand and two. And, um, I mean, you know, going to the cost of politics, I mean, uh, the wear and tear on families is, is great. And that was one of the things that certainly affected me and is on the public record. Um, but I remarried in two, 2002 and Janine, my wife, had spent uh, 16 years uh, in, um, in real estate and had a very successful career in real estate. And so when we married... We were living in Party Central. We were in Maclay Street, Potts Point. Yeah. You know, and as I phased out of politics, I thought, all right, I'll do something different. So I moved to, um, um, back to the eastern suburbs from, um, from Willoughby. 
And um, anyway, we thought, okay, we've done this. It'd be nice to have a bit of bit of room. Um, so we bought a country property at O'Connell near Bathurst. We had that for 10 years. And then that was too far away. The mountain road was under under constant repair. And what was what I remembered as a three-and-a-half-hour trip as a child became a four-and-a-half-hour trip because of traffic yeah. jams on the yeah. mountain. So we thought, we've got to get something closer. Um, this remarkable property came up called Warrington House. And uh, the first time we looked, uh, the price scared us off. And I said, "Don't even, we're not even going to see it. That, that's too much. We can't even think about it. Um, and then it was still on the market a year later. And we bought Warrington House in uh, 2010. Sorry, in, uh, in uh, 2012. And um, we, this has transformed our lives. That house is the hidden gem of Western Sydney and, and of historic houses. Yeah, so what, what's the history of, of Warrington House Warrington for those House, who don't know? Warrington House, land grant of 1806, a controversial land grant where, where Governor King was handing over to Governor Bly, as in mutiny on the bounty. They each decided it's a good time to give their families 2,000 acres each of Western Sydney. And uh, the King family is basically north of what is now the Western Railway Line. And, and Bly took 2,000 acres south of the railway line, what is now Western Sydney University campus at Warrington. Yep. So I, we were on the last, we bought the last five acres of King's land grant to his daughter. Um, the land grant 1806, they built the house in 1828. But um, the added uh, historical bonus is the father of Federation, Henry Parks, um, lived in the house from 1860 to 1872. Right, okay. Yeah. And... Uh, when he was colonial secretary in the in the New South Wales Parliament, so there's been a there's been a continuous, fairly continuous connection hmm. with the New South Wales Parliament. So Robert Copeland Lethbridge, um, as as in now Lethbridge Park, yep. Copeland Street, etc. Um, he was a member of the Legislative Council because he was a big landowner at the time. Um, back in um, when he when he built Warrington House. Um, Henry Parks uh, was colonial secretary the 12 years that he lived in Warrington House. Then he went bankrupt. Henry Parks, amazing statesman, shocking businessman, and everything that he invested in, including a newspaper, the empire, um, went broke. Yeah. And so he had a bankruptcy. He was forced out of parliament. He didn't pay the rent at Warrington House. He, it, he was renting the property. And so he had to find a new seat, find a new home, and actually found a new job. He did all of that and remarkably ended up Premier in the year that he was booted out for not paying the rent. And for you, this becomes a major restoration This became a major restoration. So it turned out the easy bit was buying the house. uh, And then it was um, eight years of really hard slog. So it really took us about eight years to get it to the stage it's at now. So we it was a total restoration. The house, look, the bones are there. It's a sandstone house, which yep. is why it survived. But um, but it took um, massive um, uh, reworking. So we, we re, re-roofed, rewired, re-plumbed, um, respectful of the uh, the design, uh, the materials used. We um, we didn't seek to change anything. We have landscaped the property, put in avenues of trees. Put in. Uh, it's now self-sustaining in terms of it's got its own water supply. We put in a bore because trees were dying during the drought. We yep. had um, droughts leading to those bushfires, so um, it is now good for another couple of hundred years. And this very much, I presume, became your passion project for those. It's the passion project, years, yeah. and we we put everything into it. And look, the theory was this was going to be kind of a. This started out as a kind of weekender, yeah. Uh, and more and more money went into it, and so and and Janine, my wife, who has basically project managed the entire thing to her credit, um, she stopped going back to Potts Point and said, "I want to live here," you know. And it's like, so we, of course, we put so much into Warrington House. How could we not live there full time? Yeah. So it's it's amazing. Now, during this time as well, some thirty years after the neonatal intensive care unit opens, you become chair of Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District, which of course has um, umbrage of Nepean Hospital. How did that come about and why did you want to get involved in what's a pretty intriguing role in a, in a very busy health district that gets a lot of attention? Well, the Medical Staff Council approached me and, uh, and said, look, um, the, uh, 
the chairman's position is coming up, would I consider it? And look, uh, because I was busy as chair of industry super and, and various other things I was doing, uh, director of host plus the industry super fund, um, I, I wasn't necessarily necessarily looking for extra things to do yeah and uh, anyway they were very insistent and said well you know you made it a teaching hospital and you put the the NICU there and you know we uh, uh, we've we've kind of chosen you we'd like you to do this and um, and uh, Stuart Ayres I think they they sent a deputation to see Stuart as well as member for Penrith and uh, so I agreed to become uh, chair of Nepean and and look it was kind of a homecoming in a way, if that yeah. makes sense. It was kind of a, um, a bookend of my career. You had I mean, uh, making, creating teaching hospitals right back there at the beginning in government, which was in incredible, groundbreaking. And I, I've got to say, for, for us as a government, the whole visionary stuff, it was terrific to come back and see it go through to fruition. So we had stage one of Nepean funded at that stage. Yep. Um, and I, um, I went to Gladys Berejiklian um, when I accepted the job uh, and she, um, I said, Gladys, you know, stage one is terrific. We've got half a billion, which, and that's now in place and open this year. Absolutely. Filling up as, as we speak. But, uh, but we need more. And how much more do you need, she said. And I said, and we, we need another half a billion, basically. Uh, we need a billion-dollar hospital to, to get this right. And, uh, and she agreed. And so stage two is, um, is about to start at Nepean um, as um, stage one fills up by, uh, by November this year. Amazing, though, how things come around in circles. Gladys Berejiklian, um, you know, re-enters your life uh, some, some uh, what, 15 years after, uh, after you exit politics. Yeah. Yep. So, I mean, I'd, um, you know, uh, I had absolutely supported and mentored her yeah. in, in her very early days. Mind you, I suspect whichever politician she'd worked for, she'd have done incredibly well. But um, uh, I had, I have deep affection for Gladys. And uh, I think what I pick up from the community is uh, she is still missed. I think that a lot Absolutely, of a lot yeah. of people are very sad that her premiership ended, um, and um, and I think she will always be loved by the New South Wales community. So, to reconnect with her in power herself, in in really transformative positions in transport, then treasury, then premier, um, you know, she was um, she was a great person to be able to pick up the phone to. You were probably the perfect person to pick up this job as well because in politics you had to deal with the negativity that surrounds things and there's no question that the health system in New South Wales and the Pean Hospital has copped a bad rap at different times. How difficult is that to manage when you know the hard work happening behind the scenes but also the challenges in regards to funding and how it runs? Um, it's, it's interesting. It's a really interesting question because um, I, I, do know, I do know how the game is played and I do know, I can, see, um, I can see weaknesses very early and I can see things that can be exploited in, in um, political exchange. And I guess, you know, people say to me, do you miss politics? No, but I do miss the opportunity to solve some of those problems that I've seen before and know so well. Yeah. Um, the um, I, um, we face particular problems in in the PN, and they've just become more and more evident to me. And all, I mean, everybody listening to this would understand implicitly that this is true. The PN faces unique problems. The PN Blue Mountains LHD. Why is that? Well, one, we are the biggest LHD, which is a sort of a metro LHD. Um, so we stretch from you know, St Mary's through to Portland in the central west, yeah. just short of Bathurst. We go up to the Hawkesbury. We get the bushfires. We, I mean, when, when we get the bushfires, we get seriously threatening bushfires um, uh, that will, you know, um, that, we ha that have ravaged the Blue Mountains for uh, a couple of years before the, the floods. So it was bushfires followed by floods, which have caused so much grief and, and loss in the Hawkesbury, which, of course, we include as well. Yeah. So we are actually, I mean, and, and we include Lithgow, by the way. So Lithgow, coal mining town. This is, this is the whole agglomeration of climate change issues. And, and this area at the same time, more and more houses, more and more people more going and in more that these hospitals have to service. More and more houses, 
we've got the Nepean River, um, you know, and right there on the Nepean River is Sydney's water supply, the Warragamba yeah. Dam. Do we do we trap more water, raise the dam wall? Do we leave it the way it is? Um, uh, if we leave it the way it is, what are the downstream effects when you get flooding? Um, we are right at the epicentre. Uh, and, and, you know, everybody might think, oh, we're all affected by climate change. Yes, we are. But we are. We, we actually confront the consequences of it here yep. on the ground in a way that no other part of Sydney does. The health system, though, I guess, is there a, a misunderstanding of it in, in some ways in that people will say, oh, I spent five hours in emergency at Nepean Hospital and there was no need for that to happen. But I guess what you're not seeing is everything that is happening that causes that five-hour you know, yep. wait or delay. Yeah, let me begin by saying this we have the best health system in the world and i've made i've studied other health systems i looked after um the uh, mike dukakis who was former um u.s state governor of massachusetts who was the democratic presidential candidate against george bush in 88 uh, i showed him our health system for four days he they came out here to learn. The Americans look at our health system. They look at our superannuation system. So like they're bewildered by it. <laughs> they're, they're a bit bewildered, but boy, do they wish they had Absolutely, our system. Yeah. They wish they had the equity and, fa- and, the, and accessibility to a health system that we have in this country. So, um, so we've actually got the best system in the world. But things go wrong in the system and you know i mean you you can't ever take your eye off the ball if you do um people can suffer so as a, a chair of a board it's trying to look at you know um what can we do better how can we improve things are there people who aren't were aren't you know looking at things as closely and diligently as they should and look generally i think we um we are doing exceptionally well um in in this space we are the outliers. We're the kind of boundary riders in, in the metro area because of where we are. Mm. Uh, and uh, in terms of media, we tend to be mostly ignored unless it's uh, a bad story. Mm. If it's ambulances running late or whatever and, you know, yeah. ramp- ramping those sorts and, of And it stuff. is difficult, those stories, as well as someone who gets a lot of these stories, because you do have to go, well... Let's look at the emotion that was driving that situation as well. Because anyone who's in a, a frightening situation, uh, you know, and they've had to go to emergencies, they're not going there for a, for a holiday. So there's there's been a problem. And sometimes you just don't think logically. And so yeah. when you tap out that email, you've got to take away the emotion sometimes it's, and look at the realities it, attached. It's, it's their dad, it's their child who's waiting, who, who's uh, in pain, who's... Um, facing some kind of life-threatening yeah. situation. And I get absolutely get the emotional involvement. It would be um, unnatural for there not to be a strong emotional reaction. And so sometimes that, that does spill over. And, and look, sometimes, and right across hospitals anywhere in the world, no matter best hospital hospitals, they'll still make mistakes. Mm. Um, we, we have to try to minimise those mistakes and always think of the patient. And, you know, I've got to give credit to our doctors and nurses. Um, we have gone through, they have worked tirelessly and continue to work tirelessly. But um, sometimes when you when you add things like getting to work out here when, you, for example, in Hawkesbury, yep. um, you know, you can't get across, the, 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 the bridge is cut yep. and you've got to get in a, a boat to get to work. Um, that can really throw things. So... Um, our staff have uh, have done magnificently in in always trying uh, circumstances. Well, as someone who's had to use uh, Nepean a few times over over the years, I've always had a, a pretty good experience there. I reckon there's a there's a there's a there's great people working at at the hospital in that system. What outside of the I guess the positive challenge of of the upgrade that's happening at the moment, what's the biggest challenge that confronts Nepean in say the next ten years? It'll be population growth and. Um, the recognition that as we're on the fringe, the urban fringe, if um, if um, a doctor or a nurse, um, uh, we've always got we've always got um, workforce pressure. So the whole country's got workforce pressure at the moment. We yep. need more yeah. everyone, right, including doctors and nurses. So if you have um, if you're trying to get doctors and nurses to fill vacancies out here. Uh, we are up against um, other local health districts, and if it's um, if you're trying to pull doctors out of uh, the inner city where it's you know nice and cool to live, uh, and uh, there are lots of lot 
lots of hospitals. And I would argue, by the way, that you still ha we still have to um, change and uh, redress the imbalance between east and west. Yeah. I'm, you know, living here now, I am. Uh, it's more obvious to me than it ever was sure. that we need more resources located in the west, and you can't just keep topping up and adding in the east where you've got a fairly static population. Um, we really need to see the resources flow where the population's going. That's the biggest challenge, getting getting the workforce. The other big challenge you had in the last couple of years, uh, of course, was the pandemic. Yeah. As chairman of the hospital, could you just take me back, I guess, to those early days of, you know, March, April 2020, and what you were confronted with as, as chairman of, of this health system that you know, was about to be under enormous pressure. We didn't know what it was going to do to Australians. We saw what was happening in other countries, which was massive loss of life amongst the elderly in particular. Um, and there wasn't um, a known uh, cure to it. So um, people will remember Newmarch House, which is yeah. the subject of the coronial inquest at the moment. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, uh, our, our, our medical team, led by Dr. James Branley, have been giving evidence about Newmarch House. I mean, James Branley led a team in, under, under the most difficult circumstances where we didn't actually control the facility, the aged care facility, yeah. Newmarch House, but we had to provide medical backup for it. And so, you know, there were questions like, does everybody go to hospital or do you treat people in situ do you treat do you treat them in new march house and james branley um i mean this i don't want to say too much about it because it's the subject sure. of the coronial inquest but um he um he canvassed um patient um uh uh the, the views of the people he who he had in his care at new march house and they wanted to stay there so um, that was the first. Uh, that was the first case, and of course, um, um, there were there were lives lost there to COVID, and that became. Um, there were a lot of learnings out of New March House. That I, I will say this because of the um, the Commonwealth responsibility for aged care facilities. I'm not sure that the lessons were passed on adequately to other aged care facilities across Australia yeah. in time to save other lives. And you had something like 800. Uh, Victorians in aged care facilities died uh, because, um, in my view, I don't know that the lessons that came out of Newmarch were learned fast mm, enough. Indeed. Well, Peter, it's an extraordinary career. Um, journalist, Defence Force, politician, uh, opposition leader, uh, and now, of course, chairman of uh, Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District and house restorer, uh, I guess, thrown in as, as well, a, a beautiful property. And uh, there's pictures online for, you know, people could uh, look up Warrington House. Uh, last question, we always ask this one to finish it off. How would Peter Collins like to be remembered? I'd like to be remembered as um, somebody who looked to the future, um, looked to uh, look to what we can do in the West and um, someone who recognises that the future of Australia's greatest city, Sydney, uh, really, really lies in what we do in the West and whether we get it right. So um, I'd like to be remembered as someone who contributed to that. I think that will be the case. Peter, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Troy. I hope you enjoyed our chat. On the Record is produced by The Western Weekender. To hear future episodes, search Western Weekender wherever you listen to podcasts and make sure you hit subscribe. Check out Western Weekender and we'll see you next time.